Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Human accomplishments like successfully climbing the world's highest mountain can inspire us. Now imagine achieving that feat while blind. Former Connecticut resident Eric Weinmayer lost his eyesight in his teens, yet he didn't let that stop him from making it to the top of Everest in 2001. Coming up, we'll talk with Weinmayer, the author of several books, including Touch the Top of the World and his latest, No Barriers. Less than one-third of climbers make it to the top of the world's highest mountain. My next guest has successfully climbed Everest nine times, making her the woman with the most Everest ascents on record. Lakpa Sherpa is a native of Nepal. She lives in West Hartford with her children, and she joins me now in studio. Lakpa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and I, I really appreciate inviting me here. I'm so happy. So earlier this year, I understand that you climbed Mount Everest, as I mentioned, for the ninth time for people who uh, most of us have heard of Mount Everest. But this, we're talking about a mountain that's 29,000 feet above sea level. What was that like to to reach the ascent the ninth time? Yes, because I'm so uh, learning my patience in the top of the Everest. I'm born 4,000 meters in very high altitudes in my mom's house. And after I wake up... My eye, I'm a baby. My childhood, I just see this mountain around me uh, because I never know about toys. I never know about cell phone, anything electrics my life uh, have. It. And I see this mountain, my eyes, I open. Uh, I love because we are it's my dad also guiding up in the mountain and my, many tourists. And I say, I want to follow them. Mm. My dad put this there. Tell me more about your upbringing in Nepal. So your parents, how many siblings uh, did you have? I have seven sisters and four brothers. Yeah, and also my both four brothers guiding people. Any Himalayas people come in, tourists come, they guide service in Nepal. Uh, so I had read that your uh, parents were farmers, but when did your father uh, decide to help climbers make it to the top of Everest? My dad work hard in my mom's house, mostly mom's house wife. And my dad's only looking jobs, bring food in all the children, and give a good life in the wife. Uh, he taught the best way. He, he also, four brothers, must send to school very far away. And we are in Nepal, no school with the girl, no can go to school. Anyway, my brothers, very four hours, two hours walk. And I must carry all the times my back, two brothers. One is a carry, one is with me walking. And I'm a look like a yellow boss in the air. And I carry the, all the times back in the force in a four hour. One, two hour back in the school, two hour back in four hour I working. And my mom's send me pick up the brother and I must go, yes. It sounds like you were a good sister then. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm a look like a yellow boss. <laughs> So you were saying that uh, the reason that your father started helping with these climbing expeditions is to help uh, your family, including um, your brothers. So when did you first start helping your father in terms of helping the tourists uh, make that climb? 
tourists comes, you know, my dad want to guide up and show them the path, guidings, hiking. And he, I want to go, you know, look like my dad. And my mom says, no, you are the home and you must stay home and learning the cooking, whatever home and things. You must need the marriage. And I really boring, you know, I say, no, this is not my job. And I don't want it. And all my sister listen, but I'm a little bit not listening. I want to go hiking. It's so much beautiful hiking, hill, you know, this around me. You know why? I want to go explore myself. You know, I I don't want to stay housewife. And my mom's very worried for me. I cannot find a man because I do the men things. And she said, who 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 marriage this girl? You know, she never know learns women things. This is where we live. Lakpa Sherpa is in studio with me. She's a West Hartford resident and the only woman to hold the record of climbing Mount Everest nine times. Despite her mother's reservations, Sherpa went on to work as a porter when she was 15 years old in Nepal, working alongside her father. She would carry items for tourists from one base camp to the next. I carry because I'm very tall, look like my dad. All my sisters are very small size, medium size. I'm a little tall. And uh, I can't carry look like a man, jobs. And I carry them heavy things, you know. And my dad says she can't carry heavy things, you know, she can't go with me. But, you know, yes, my dad tests me and I can carry heavy things and I can follow his level walking. Mm. Yeah. And he take me, he said, yes. But it was uh, when you were in your 20s, when you were actually able to climb yourself with other women. How did that happen? What did you have to do to get that permission to go? One woman, Tarai, she had three children, and she died. She summit, but she no make it down, and she died. That times I'm really teenagers, my age. And I said, well, I know that she died. You know, we see, you know, she died. And every woman is scared. And my, everybody's, you know, really... A Nepal, a Sharba homen, Nepali homen, they really not do sport. They just want to stay home, uh, do cooking, and give us the food and husband, and take care of the children. They do. I'm really not wanting this, and I feel I want men jobs. I like learning men jobs. What are men doing, you know? What are homen doing? I want to share, you know, my experience. I want to learn uh, how many men work hard or Home and work hard. I want to do it, but you see, I want to feel my body. Yeah. I I want to test them. You know, I did, and I'm so scared. You know, I really want to go climbing big mountain, small mountain. I already summit, Merak Peaks, Ngawal Peaks, six thousand meters. I never know been in school, uh, training. I just want to learn myself. Everything's myself. I learn, you know, step by step. Uh, so how did you and this group of women, did you have to petition the Nepalese government to be allowed to climb yourselves, not as a as a guide, but this is something that you wanted to do? Uh, the men's no belief. Whoa, why women climbing? This woman died. Pasan Lam was died already. Uh, why you want to go? I really want to go. And I say, I want to go helping me. I say, uh, you, I need the help. And I write the, some letters. And it give everybody the government. Uh, I really want to go uh, at all. You know, some women accept. You know, some smart 
educated woman. Uh, his parameter daughters in Nepal, his n- name, Susma Kweral, she's accept them. She said, yeah, she want to go with help. You know, she, she did helping me. And uh, I'm, yeah, all the Nepali women's teams I go, you know. I have a long dreams in I summit because I had my mind set up many, many years. I want to summit Mount Everest. I want to show them Nepali women can do a sport, but not have educated by this sport is learning myself. Mm-hmm. And I show them the women I can do it. You know, all women after they really, she, oh, Lakpa did. And she did again. And she did again. She not die. They, everybody excited. And they follow my footsteps, and I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this was a goal of yours for a long time. You said that you uh, learned yourself. When we think about when people do different sports, they have to train for it. And Mount Everest, climbing Mount Everest can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So how did you prepare? Yes, uh, mountain Everest is very dangerous uh, by luck. You know, sometimes they can kill. Uh, sometimes uh, mountain Everest is, is we cannot fight. You know, we just go some avalanche is coming, we accept them. But I'm lucky. I feel I'm lucky. You know, they're not really. We also, Mount Everest is a god in the Mount uh, Chamulengmo, means God in the mothers. We really respect them. Uh, all Sharba, all Sharba women respect in the Mount Everest. Did you ever have an experience where there was an avalanche or an earthquake where you were concerned about um, surviving yeah. to see another day? Can you talk about that? Yes, I'm so earthquake in Nepal, 2000, uh, earthquake day, I'm a day in Everest Base Camp, uh, I'm a Camp One, but all the Camp, Base Camp people die, and we had, we stay alive, uh, Camp One people not die, because Camp One is more dangerous, but Everest is, Base Camp is not dangerous, but we stay alive when Camp One, Camp one people, they came, two people uh, came, best came people all die. I feel so shocked. This was in 2015? Yes, uh, 2015. Uh, and I feel all the mountains coming my way. You know, I feel I'm sing in this ice down. I feel I not see my daughters. And I so compass five seconds, right there go, you know, look like all the mountain falling different direction and noising and we so we are alive and we come back and they day I know summit I come back because so many people die and so many mother nature happens mm-hmm. yes but that didn't uh, keep you from trying again yeah mm-hmm. I I feel uh, I accept the mother nature you know I going back in the next times 2016 and I summit yeah mm-hmm. Uh, you were able to prove a lot of people wrong being uh, a woman to climb Mount Everest. You didn't die. You did it again and again and again. What is it about climbing Mount Everest? That, what does it mean to you to be able to achieve that? People drinking wine all the time, never no stop. I feel like that now. I feel all the mountain Everest in my body, all the mountains. I need to go. I no go. I feel I'm sick. You know, I feel something hurt me. You know, I need to go because Mountain Everest is my doctors uh, make me feel good. You know, I had a defecture, makes it disappear. 
Uh, I feel look like changing with the ear. You know, it really makes me feel good in the Everest. Yes. I understand uh, you have three children. Two of them are daughters. How do they feel about their mother being uh, the only woman to have uh, summited uh, Mount Everest nine times? What do they say about you? Are they proud of you? My daughters, is both daughters born in Harper, uh, Connecticut, Harper. Uh, I feel I'm a Connecticut woman right now. But my English not so good, but I feel it's a woman here me, you know. I live in almost many years. I've been two children born here. My daughter is uh, now is a 16. For uh, she going Connor. Uh, one is, is uh, she going Cedric's Middle School. She's 11. There, I'm so happy. You know, I work so hard and give this girl good educators. Not look like me. You know how they need it. I feel I'm hurt myself. I cannot read write. You know, I'm not good to speak English. And I really want these two girls have a great educated. I taught them my best. And I think they're doing good too. Very good girl. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy. And they, of course, they, I go in Everest. They say, Mama, are you going again? No way. And I'm scared. You die? Who watch you, Mama? Who, who take care of us? And I look my daughter's face. Believe me. Trust me. I am come back. I know them. I'm an experienced mama, learning many, many years. You can touch your computers and laptops, your phone. You have a very comfortable, you know, miss it. I'm a look like, like that mountain. I'm very comfortable. I come back. You know, she look in my face and she say, yes. Permiss? Yes, I promise. I come back. And of course, I come back again and again. They trust me. They come back me life, yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were unable to go to school, so uh, you're so very proud of the sacrifices that you've been able uh, to endure so that your children, your daughters now have an education. Yeah, I work hard, whole food. I also test myself right now, this moment. Men, single men, and single moms, single men, fathers, work in two both jobs, very difficult. And I feel them, you know, all that I really respect them. All single mom and a single dad is really they do double shape all the times. And I did myself. And I understand this life now. Uh, can I ask, Lakpa, uh, what brought you to Connecticut? How long have you lived here? My, my ex-husbands, uh, we meet in the mountains. Uh, I come from here. We, each other no good, and we divorce. And I taken myself of my children, seven years right now, it's eight years almost. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Lakpa Sherpa, a West Hartford resident who has climbed Mount Everest nine times, the only woman to do so. After the break, we're going to continue our conversation, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Lakpa Sherpa, who lives in West Hartford with her children. This past spring, she completed her ninth successful climb of Mount Everest, the world's highest mountain. She's the only woman to hold that record. I asked her how New England's mountains compare to the Himalayas. Sherpa just recently hiked up the White Mountains. I just summit my Washington's uh, one month ago. After I coming, I really want to go explore myself. You know, 
here can occur is no, no her mountains, you know, by here can occur very near, one beautiful mountains that can hike four hours, up four hours, come nine hours we walk. It's great, you know, look like it's beautiful round here mountain and I don't need to go to California, Colorado. I opened also Kalowskiv, Kalaming, you know, I like take who want to go hike with me. I like helping, you know, teach my experience. You mentioned cloudscape climbing, so that's your own company where uh, you take people on hiking and climbing uh, yeah. expeditions? Yes, I like taking hiking climbing because uh, people want to go, can contact us. Uh, so your day job is you work at Whole Foods as a dishwasher, as you yes. mentioned, but your passion is climbing. That's why you opened up this company? Yes, yes. We'll have more uh, information about uh, cloudscape climbing on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, Lakba, can I ask you about um, how Mount Everest has become increasingly popular among tourists uh, who want to climb? Are there um, any concerns that you have with how, I guess, the this uh, industry, uh, for lack of a better word, has uh, exploded in recent years? Because it is dangerous. And we know in, in 2014, there was that um, avalanche that killed... Um, many Sherpas. Yes. At this mountain, Everest a uh, very good popular because everybody want who don't want to go in the top of the wall, in a beautiful view and beautiful hike. Everybody likes to go, you know. People sometimes scared, but some people no scared. They say, okay, I want to go. It's a beautiful top of the wall. Why not? You know, Sherpa helping. You know, sh- uh, we are helping very well in tourist people that we really, really, some tourists is the problem. We s- stay there. Some rescue people call. We still stay with the tourist men. Never not let, let alone. We watching look like a babysitting, you know, bring very well down. And uh, we put them some in, and we s- bring people happy, go send home. We jobs this, you know, makes people happy. I understand it's not cheap to climb uh, Mount Everest. I think a a group of seven, it costs uh, about $70,000. So definitely a a certain population of wealthy people can afford to do this. Uh, Are there enough, uh, what I'm asking is um, with the pressure, with the popularity of climbing Mount Everest, um, are there enough uh, safety measures to protect Sherpas like yourself? Yes. The very smart people come in Everest, climbing. They're very rich people. And uh, also the very educated people comes. They want to do only one time and go home and it's good. Mm-hmm. They want to dream successfully happy what they want. I mentioned earlier that uh, earlier this year you climbed Mount Everest for the ninth time successfully. Um, when's the next time that you'll be attempting this? Because you said to us that you know you um, you it, it's almost as if the mountain calls you back uh, yeah. time and time again. And how long does it take? Uh, how much time out of the year does it take to climb Mount Everest? Two months. Uh, the Everest is a season. One season coming, one times one year, so one season comes. This season is April, April and May. After they had a very good season because springs very near, near, you know, we follow the spring up in this. One season is the best area, the April. And I go fly April 10 in Kathmandu, and after I start them coming up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. 
in May 2021, I submit all the terms. Maybe early, different uh, weathers, different uh, Everest weather. Uh, I mentioned you have two daughters. Uh, one day, do you hope to climb Mount Everest with them? They had a different dreams. Mm. One girl is a rider's dreams. You know, people, they're changing a lot. They're changing. But now my big daughter, Sunny, she's not changing. She still keeps the same dreams. When I told Sunny, you do something new to come, I asked, no, I want to shame. I want to do it. Mm. It's good. Mm. Follow the, your dreams, and you reach there. I told like that. Uh, recently, uh, in uh, the country of Peru, uh, there's a group of women who've been permitted to uh, be uh, porters, so similar to what Sherpas are doing, but mm-hmm. carrying uh, uh, the supplies, the tents for people who are making the trek on the Inca Trail. What do you think about that when you hear about other women that are that are accomplishing these feats? Very good. Uh, they, we must do it. Step by step. Hard work. Hard work work all the time. It's good. I feel uh, women do that, you know, follow dreams, work hard. My dad told me, eat healthy food, work hard, never no die. I do. I, I remember my dad told me this. You eat healthy food and you work hard, you never no die. And this is I believe. So spring of 2019, will you be attempting to climb Mount Everest for the 10th time? Yes, uh, I try because I feel in nine times my dream is the tents. I feel as a have a ten hands. You know, now I only keep the nine times. I feel you know have one fingers myself, and I feel I look like I want to finish the, my school. Look like I feel it's congratulation. You know my jobs, and I feel I I'm a one of ten times. Yes, mm-hmm. I feel I'm a, feel like that. Well, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Lakpa. You've told your story uh, several times. So um, what do you want people to get from hearing about um, the your accomplishments? Uh, what do you want them to learn? I want to write a book one day, my childhood, what I come from, what I have it. This is I want to do my life. Uh, my daughter told me, Mama, nobody writing book for you. I want to write it. She, little one say, yeah, I need to write it because I really, really want a book, you know. Everest is uh, one educated part. Sometimes whole put I work, bunch of friends, no understanding Everest. You know, Everest is the one educated learn. Children must learn in bigger mountains, which way. I want to tell them it's a mountain Everest in Nepal between China and Tibet in between Nepal. Half is in Nepal, half in Tibet people's uh, mountain there, Tibet. This is, is uh, people say Mountain Everest Japan sometimes. <laughs> they say, oh, Mountain Everest what? What what that means? The name, they ask me like that. And I, I'm really shocked. So in writing this book, you hope to educate more people about the mountain? Yeah, m- maybe children can learn more uh, uh, Himalaya things, you know, children, Everest, which part is it that belong there? Children can learn, yes. 
Well, when you have that book written, we'd love to speak with you again, Lachlan. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Uh, this, this is a long term, so you must wait. Lakpa <laughs> <laughs> Sherpa, again, is a West Hartford resident. She's climbed Mount Everest nine times, the only woman to do so. Uh, she holds the record. And she'll be uh, summiting Mount Everest again uh, next spring. Lakpa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much in inviting me talking radio. I'm so happy. Namaste, my side. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Eric Weinmayer joins us. The former Connecticut resident describes himself as a blind adventurer, and he's completed the seven summits, successfully climbing the highest peaks on the seven continents. We'll talk with him after the break, and you can join the conversation too. Email us, where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In 2001, Eric Weinmayer became the first blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. It wasn't his first climb, and it certainly wasn't his last. He describes himself as a blind adventurer, and he's written several books, including his latest, No Barriers. I spoke to him recently via Skype about his life, including part of his childhood spent in Connecticut. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi. Now, um, I want to learn a little bit of your backstory, and I understand that you grew up uh, part of the time here in Connecticut. But when you were a young child, you were diagnosed with a rare eye disorder. Could you tell us more about that time in your life? Well, I kind of vaguely remember it. It was four years old. My dad said my eyes were tracking uh, incorrectly, and it sort of alarmed him. So he sent me, we went around to a bunch of doctors, and after dozens of doctor visits and experts, they told me, and my family that I would be blind by an early teenager and that there was no cure to this disease. And yeah, I lost a lot of sight over middle school. I'd wake up kind of every couple days to a new reality as bits and pieces of my retinas would break away. And uh, about a week before my freshman year in high school, I was totally blind. And that was quite a shock because it's not like I'm a little bit blind, I'm visually impaired. No, I'm blind as a bat. Like I couldn't take a step in front of me. Uh, and that was really scary. That that was a, not the easiest time. How did your parents prepare you for that outcome? I'm sure that the doctors uh, said, and as you mentioned, that you would eventually lose your sight. And this is also a time where in adolescence, uh, it can be difficult growing up and going through certain emotions, but you were losing your sight. How did that impact you? And how did your parents help you? I just wanted to fit in, you know, I just did like any middle school kid, you know, you don't want to stand out, you know, so my parents tried to prepare me by trying to make me learn Braille and like get ready using a cane. And I didn't want any part of that because blindness to me was this evil word. And if I gave into it, then it would make me blind. And so I just fought it tooth and nail and I did what every kid would probably do, which was I completely ignored it. I denied it. You know, uh, I would make up reasons why I was losing sight, you know, like, oh, I, I didn't need enough breakfast this morning. Uh, you know, just silly things. But your brain is so powerful. You know, it can convince you of whatever it wants to. So I was in absolute denial. Uh, There's nothing my parents could do to prepare me, really. What changed for you where you weren't fighting the blindness anymore? Well, I mean, partly you get beat into submission, right? Honestly, uh, I was not using my cane properly. Uh, I took a step off a dock and uh, 
I did a flip in the air and I landed on the, on my back on the deck of a boat and the things like that, I thought, okay, you know, this thing is bigger than me, this blindness, I can't beat it. You know, I can't change it. I can't change the reality of it. So I have to kind of give into it. And in a way that was a good thing because it sort of pushed my ego back and gave me some humility to say, okay, this is my reality. And I have to, one, begrudgingly accept it and sort of find a place for blindness and not think of it as some evil, devastating thing like cancer that's, you know, going to kill me, um, but just make it a part of my life and integrate it into my life and then sort of figure out a way to push the parameters within that box, you know, push the parameters as much as possible. And the way I would do that would be to learn these skills, you know, to learn how to use a cane, to learn how to read Braille, to you know, to use computers with technology, you know, voice synthesizers. And ultimately that led to me realizing, I guess, that the fun and the adventure of life is finding your pathway. It's not just like fitting in like a sheep, you know, but actually sort of trying to figure out your own individual pathway through the world. And that became quite an adventure. I understand that you were uh, pretty athletic, and tell us how uh, you established yourself as a wrestler in high school, and then how you started to, as you mentioned, push the parameters, push the boundaries, even being introduced to rock climbing. I remember sitting on the side in the bleachers on the gym and listening to my brothers who were great athletes, you know, pound up and down the basketball court scoring baskets and my dad was a captain of his football team and he was a Marine fighter pilot in Vietnam. So we had like a lot of adventure and athletics in our family. And I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I, I can't play basketball anymore. I just kept getting pounded in the head with the ball. So one, I joined the wrestling team. It was really scary, but I loved it. I tapped my cane up the hallway one afternoon and joined the wrestling team. They beat my face into the mat, just like every other wrestler. I love that. I didn't want to be babied. I found my family. I loved, I committed myself to wrestling. Uh, I loved being a part of things that were bigger than me, you know, where blindness wasn't the focus. I was just in this family and we were all pursuing something big. I love that. And I, then I got a letter in Braille of a group taking blind kids rock climbing. It was part of a recreational program for blind kids. (laughs) And, uh, I ran my hand up the wall of my room in Connecticut and I said, who would be stupid enough to take a blind kid rock climbing? So I signed up. And uh, I loved it. It was so engaging, you know, feeling my way up the granite rock face, using my hands and my feet as my eyes, sort of problem solving the pattern in the rock and trying to discover what came next. It was so utterly engaging, so opposite of what I thought blindness could ever be, uh, that it, it was the opposite of that prison that I envisioned blindness being. And uh, I don't know, long story short, 16 years later, I was standing on top of the world. It changed the trajectory of my life. As a young man, you moved to Arizona and you were teaching at Phoenix Country Day School. And that's when I believe you really started to take climbing seriously. So tell us about the first summit. Is it Denali that you did? Yeah, well, I was mostly just a weekend warrior rock climbing in the desert. I joined the Arizona Mountaineering Club. And my friend, uh, Sam, he has attention deficit disorder. So he's really like a great thinker because he doesn't think in such a linear way. And we're climbing in the desert, rock faces. And he said, we should try something bigger. And I was like, well, like what, you know, like a bigger rock face. And he said, let's try Denali. And I got really carried away with that idea. Uh, you know, I'd barely even been in the snow, you know, except in Boy Scouts. 
And this is a massive 20,000 foot glaciated peak. And it started a process training for a year and a half. You know, it's, it's one thing to sort of creep along, you know, in pro- your progress, but we actually committed. We said, um, I'm going to pick a date in June and we're going to do it. And it's a year and a half from now and we got to get ready. So it makes you go from A to Z really fast. And we just went all around uh, the country, just training like crazy, learning how to use, how to navigate as a blind person, how to set up tents with my hands, you know, through with gloves and how to cook meals on stoves and how to pull people out of crevasses uh, just getting as self-sufficient as I could. And, uh, in in June, 1995, which is a long time ago now, um, we stood on the summit of Denali after 19 days. Uh, it turned out to be Helen Keller's birthday when we stood on top. And at that point I said, okay, this is so unbelievably hard. I don't know if I'm cut out for this life, but I like to devote my life to adventure and see if I could make a life as an adventure, kind of a, not the easiest path being blind. You went on to complete the seven summits, the highest peaks uh, on the seven continents, including Mount Everest. In 2001, you became the first blind person to reach the summit. Could you describe that moment uh, for us? Again, uh, you became blind uh, in your early teens, but you did this, uh, you know, this feat that many of us couldn't do. What was it like when you when you reached that summit? Well, your body physically, you just get beat up every day and then you have to wake up and do it all over again. So you're just slowly plugging your way up the mountain. And we left at nine o'clock at night. We had a team of uh, 13 Westerners and uh, eight, eight Sherpas. We piled out of the tent like clockwork and we pushed through the night and, you know, it's just kicking steps one step after the next. Uh, my team out there breaking trail and helping me out, navigate, helping me to navigate. And, uh, uh, we were lucky because we didn't have a lot of wind that day. We, it was snowing on and off and some lightning and storm in the distance, but we were really lucky, fortunate. Uh, and I crossed the Hillary step and about a half an hour from the summit, I was taking six breaths between each step, which actually is fast on Everest. And I was counting my, my breaths and, uh, you take a step and there's nowhere else to go. And you're standing on this little Island about the size of a single car garage in the sky. And I could, you know, blind people use what's called echolocation. You know, sound is like, it's vibration. It's going off into space and bouncing off of objects and coming back at you. And you get lots of good information through your ears, through those sound vibrations. And on the summit of Everest, I could hear the sound of the sky that literally just moved out infinitely through space. It was the most powerful sound that you could hear just being swallowed by sky, by space. It was very, very beautiful and kind of scary. Uh, There are some who are probably hearing your story for the first time and are thinking, uh, but if you couldn't see, you know, what was that like at the top of the summit? But you have said to others that, you know, climbing is not a visual sport. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, you know, sight is a really powerful sense, right? It's very, it's a very big sense where you get tons of information. But when you go blind, you you don't have sight anymore. You have to use your other senses. You have to milk what you have, you know, to get beauty and information from the world through your other senses. So I think it's enough for me, you know, the movement of your body, you know, rhythmically moving up the mountain, plunging your axe into the snow or the ice, feeling the wind, feeling the sun, feeling the texture of the rock and the ice under your hands, sensing that open space around you, uh, as I said uh, earlier. So I think you get plenty of 
of of scenery. It's just not the kind of scenery that a sighted person is used to. To be honest with you, too, most of the time people summit a mountain and they're in a whiteout, like it's cloudy, big clouds all around you. You can't even see anywhere. So uh, so most times sighted people are in the same boat as me anyway. <laughs> Can I ask you, um, you know, late last year, Nepal attempted to ban blind people, also double amputees from climbing Everest. I believe recently a court overturned that ban. What was your reaction when you heard about these rules that uh, Nepal was trying to put there? Yeah, well, it's hard to articulate. And I kind of was like, I don't I didn't want to get myself into trouble by being too aggressive with my opinion. But I honestly think and maybe this is too blunt, but I think that it comes down to superstition, you know, because um, Everest was, you know, when it was first climbed by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, they thought, oh, God, these people step foot on the mountain, up high on the mountain. It's going to bring rain. It's going to rain destruction and bad luck and all sorts of bad stuff down on the village. And uh, and I think that's the same way that is the superstition around blindness in, in Nepal and Tibet and places like that, you know. Um, that maybe you've done something bad in a past life to deserve this fate. And so you're, you're cursed with bad luck. And if you, and if you go onto the mountain, you're going to bring bad luck on everyone around you and, and Nepal itself. And so I think the ruling of banning blind people and disabled people from the mountain was based a little bit on that superstition. Funny enough, when I climbed Everest, we had, uh, we were trying to get Sherpas to join our team and we couldn't find them. They wouldn't join our team because of that bad luck thing. And uh, one of the guys on Pasang Sherpa had climbed Everest three times. And he he said, I'll join your team. I don't believe in this idea of uh, that you're born with bad luck. I think you make your own luck. I think you make your own karma. And that was so powerful. And once he joined, all the Sherpas joined. And uh, they were our biggest supporters. How, how have you seen your story and what you've been able to accomplish uh, really start to squash misperceptions about blindness? Can you talk about how uh, some, um, you know, in, in certain interviews you've done where you hear uh, people uh, doubt that this can, can uh, be something that anyone can do or they want to doubt uh, the fact that, um, that you're able to accomplish this despite not having sight? Can you walk us through some of those misperceptions and how you respond to them? That used to happen when I was younger, you know what I mean? But I, I don't find that as much anymore. People don't really doubt me personally. You know, like a few years ago, I kayaked the Grand Canyon. And, um, you know, that was bigger in some ways for me than climbing Everest. I could solo kayak the Grand Canyon with guides behind me yelling directions through, you know, massive 20, 30-foot waves. And not too many people said, that's impossible. You can't do that, you know, because I think maybe in the modern world, people have learned their lesson. <laughs> Um, I think more importantly, um, it's about people's perceptions of what's possible for them. Because I think so many of us, we start out with adventure and hope and excitement. And, you know, along that journey of life, we get beat down, we get baggage, we get crust that we build over ourselves. And we kind of get sidelined into this place that we don't want to be. And I, and I hope my story and the message of No Barriers is the idea that you don't have to get sidelined. It's it's a treacherous road as you progress through your life. But yet, if you can kind of commit to these elements, these ideas of what growth, of, of how to grow and evolve through your life, then you can keep moving forward. You can keep breaking through your own personal barriers 
and you can contribute to the world in some profound way. So I think for me, the response is more of a personal thing when I meet people who have been beat down by anxiety or fear or post-traumatic stress disorder or trauma, uh, these invisible barriers that just get in our way. To me, that is a profound connection to say to those people, look, you can move forward uh, with the right credibility, you know, with a little more credibility. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Eric Weinmayer. He's a blind adventure author and speaker. Uh, used to live in Connecticut. He's joining us today via Skype. Uh, Eric, you uh, referenced your uh, most recent book, No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. So after doing uh, the, the seven summits, uh, you've uh, pushed yourself to a new challenge. Uh, tell us about uh, why kayaking. Well, I was actually up on a big ice face in Nepal, shivering and hungry with a friend. And he said, wow, you know what? We should uh, be on a beautiful river in the sun. He goes, it's way better than shivering and being hungry way up high here. And I laughed. It was a joke, you know, because you're always, when you're climbing, you're thinking about uh, sea level and, and sunny pursuits. And uh, anyway, so we got back down. I said, hey, teach me a kayak roll. And he did. And uh, then I said, hey, why don't you, would you guide me down an easy river? And one thing led to the next. And uh, by you know, a couple of years out, I'd committed to the Grand Canyon and uh, trying to decipher how we're going to like, you know, break through these huge rapids. Uh, we ultimately came across these amazing radios that my team could communicate with me and really loud rapids. And uh, I kept pursuing this thing, even though I was it was so different from climbing, you know, rivers are so different. Uh, you, you're moving at the river's pace, right? You're not able to stop like you are on a mountain and reassess and regroup you, you can't put on the brakes you know and you got to commit you got to paddle into these massive rapids and you know for the next two minutes you're about to get destroyed by these rapids these waves hitting you in every direction that you can't see them coming at you and uh it was hard on my psyche i have to admit it was definitely upping the ante in terms of uh adventure hmm. uh, when uh people hear your story do they see you as a, a daredevil Sometimes people do, but I, I honestly, and I mean this totally honestly, it's, I'm not a daredevil. I'm very, I'm a chicken, you know, I'm very methodical about things. I build a great team around me. I build great technologies and innovations around me. I train as hard as a human can possibly train so that I'm prepared. You know, I have that 10,000 hours under my belt, you know, so that I'm prepared for different situations for improvising on the, on the spot, which is what you have to do often. So I really think I'm enamored by this process of going through, you know, looking at something really big and then figuring out how do you get there? What are, what's the sort of linear map that you build to, to get from point A to point Z? And uh, even though there's so many things that can shove you to the sidelines along the way, how do you sort of keep moving forward? I think I'm really enamored by that process. And for me, you mentioned the new book. The book is about kayaking, but the book really, the message is much more about this process, um, which I call No Barriers, which has become a movement uh, uh, now, um, which is how do you keep moving forward despite the barriers and the challenges that sometimes seem so overwhelming? 
your, non- yeah. your nonprofit yeah. is called No Barriers, and I do want to learn a little bit more about that. But uh, for those of us who haven't kayaked uh, the Grand Canyon, the idea of sometimes being immersed in water, fast water, uh, raging rapids, how did you use that technology when we know technology has limits uh, and the importance of, again, working with a team uh, to get to get it done? Well, the, really the biggest technology was the radio system because we were looking for radios that I could hear in these massive, loud rapids. And, uh, you know, a lot of them had delays. You know, they have a half a second delay, which is an eternity in a rapid. And a lot of them were really unreliable. And so, yeah, finding the right technology, even when we found it, you know, these radios that communicated in real time, uh, they broke down. You know, the, Colorado has massive silt and it gets into the membrane of the radio. And <laughs> say so they even didn't, didn't work out. So technology will let you down quite often. So it comes down to your team. My friends just getting behind me um, kind of close as they could safely, um, knowing that you're in this rapid that could you know, take you out at any time. And then just yelling very simple, very direct commands like hard left, hard right, small left, small right, charge, which means charge into this, this hole or this, this rapid that, you know, if you don't charge hard, it's going to, it's going to beat you down and it's going to hold you under. So you got to charge through it. So just very simple commands. Uh, and then me being a good enough kayaker that, you know, when I get knocked over, which is inevitable, I can roll up. I know the timing of when to roll up when the river releases you. Uh, again, you mentioned uh, your nonprofit, No Barriers. So tell me uh, how you translate uh, the achievements that you've accomplished uh, throughout your life, these adventures that you've taken on and been able to accomplish. When you talk with children, with veterans, what's your message to them? Well, for me personally, you know, I I think about the mountains, the, the rivers that I've kayaked. And I think, you know, for me, there's an important piece, which is, you're not really just standing on top, pounding your chest, although maybe I did that a bit when I was younger. But I think as you get a little bit older and wiser, you realize that the sort of the, 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 the meaning of these things is to figure out a way to take these gifts, these things that you've been given, the, these things you've maybe earned through your struggle and bring them down the mountain and use them in your life and marry that extreme with your everyday life and the people that you interact with. And so No Barriers became a movement to help all of us with challenges. As I said, not just people with physical challenges, but people with invisible barriers, which is all of us in this big No Barriers club, to figure out how do we break through the barriers in our lives that seem so real, that are so big, and how do you, you know, um, how do you then elevate the world around you uh, through your own experiences. And, uh, so yeah, it became a small movement and it's been growing ever since. Now we impact about 10,000 people a year and, uh, we had events and programs and expeditions all around the world. And it's, uh, been so uh, powerful for me to connect with people. You know, their Everest is just like, I want to walk down a set of stairs again. I want to get out of my house and walk in the sunshine and, uh, without fear. Uh, I want to get a job again. I want to write a book. I want to climb mountains. I want to start a nonprofit. Um, it's been so fun to be able to facilitate people's own dreams. It's natural uh, for us at times to doubt ourselves, and it's sometimes hard to to block out uh, people's criticisms. But when you hear that from some of the people that you're working with, uh, what is your advice to them? How do they do that? 
Well, I think they surround themselves with people that have this no barriers mindset and spirit. Uh, so like we hold events all around the country, uh, one of which is coming up in New York in October, New York City, uh, we're holding a big event, but it's surrounding yourself with this community. And, you know, you you sit at a table and there's a kid who's blind who hasn't been off the pavement who's about to go on a big hike and uh, uh, a soldier who struggled with some trauma, some PTSD. Uh, there's a, you know, a woman who's had a full heart transplant and <laughs> is there living today and uh, a person who's had trauma and is struggling uh, to work their way through that. And a CEO that's, you know, thinking, I want to bring her business, you know, to the next level. You know, it's just this really eclectic movement and you surround yourself with people like that, all striving to break through barriers and find purpose in our lives. And it's exactly what every person needs, I think, uh, because we can't do it alone. Uh, none of the things I've ever done have been just me. They've been a great team that's lifting you up, that's sort of forcing you to become the best version of yourself. Your No Barrier Summit again is happening in the fall in New York City. We're going to have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Eric, I can't let you go without asking you about your next adventure. Can you tell us about it? I'm still climbing a lot. Um, I'm going to head to an amazing, gigantic rock, these rock faces in the desert in December, a place called Wadi Rum, and um, heading back to the Himalayas to uh, climb a peak uh, called Amada Blom, uh, which I failed at 18 years ago. So really good logic in my life. I failed when I was young and strong. And now uh, as I turn 50, I think I'm going to have a chance. But I really do have a chance because I have experience now. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll try Amada Blom again. And uh, yeah, the, the, there's more adventures left in my life than I have cartilage in my knees. So I'll run out of cartilage before I run out of adventures. Those will, you know, I hope to climb uh, for a long time. Eric Weinmayer, again, is a blind adventurer, author, and speaker. He joined us today via Skype. His latest book, No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. Eric, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyan Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. You can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.